and he came to correct man's theology or man's theology is simply the study of God or man's perspective about who God was and who God is. And so in doing that, when Jesus came, one of the things that he did in correcting the perspective of God and correcting the perspective of how we see him and how we relate to him is he came to bring us something and give us an understanding of something that's called the kingdom, right? The kingdom. Everybody say it with me. Kingdom. kingdom. It means king's dominion. You can say that. King's rule. Say that with me. It means king's dominion. King's dominion. It means where the king rules. You can say that. It means where the king rules. So when Jesus comes to bring the kingdom, he comes to show us where the king is going to rule and reign. That's the idea. Jesus came. So some of these slides are going to be a little bit of a review from last week. But then the backside, I'm trying to point you into something that's a little bit um, off of this teaching. And the reason that I feel like this is so important is that we've got to get our theology about God correct. We have got if we're going to walk with the Lord and we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to see the things correctly. And a lot of times, and this is, this is the fault of the church itself and the fault of the teaching itself, is that we have failed to understand key principles of the gospel. And we have failed to understand and see the things in light of what the Bible is actually telling us. And so there's a lot of skewed teaching out there that teaches, th that teaches Christians really poor things. And some of you might be coming from that context. You might be coming out of, a, out of a tradition or out of a denomination where they've taught you some really bad things. And you may not even know that they're bad. But when I show you this, you're going to say, well, wow, that isn't really what I was taught growing up in church. And it may not be. But I'm going to tell you it is what the Bible teaches. And so what we have to do as Christians at some point, and some people don't know, and here's the best part. The Christian who doesn't know anything, you're like, hey, man, I'm just I'm just all in for Jesus. I just want more of Jesus. I mean, you're right in the game because like you can just take this stuff and there's no filters that you have to get past. But oftentimes when we've taught through a tradition or we've been taught through denominational studies is that we, we come with these filters and we come with these grids because those are the things that have been established in us. And not those filters and those grids are not always correct. And so what we have to decide in our heart is we have to decide, are we going to follow tradition? Are we going to follow perspective? Or are we going to follow what the scripture is actually saying? That's the question. So Jesus came to bring the kingdom. He came to bring the rule of reign of God to the earth. Right? Once you understand this. And we're going to break that down. And, and I'm going to show you this. It says, from this time Jesus came forward saying what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's right here. The kingdom now, because I'm here and I'm in breaking and the heavens are going to open and the heavens have departed. And now, and even when he ascended and he sent the spirit, the spirit came to bring the kingdom. All that Jesus came to bring, he, he did the work, he ascended, he sent the spirit to now manifest the rule and the reign of God upon the earth. That's the whole point of the spirit is to manifest the rule and the reign of God upon the earth through the believer. It's the whole point. Holy Spirit isn't here to just give you a warm fuzzy. Holy Spirit isn't here to just make you feel good in a worship service. That's not the purpose of the Holy Spirit. It's dunamis power to be witnesses and martyrs and those who bring the kingdom. That's the whole point of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus comes and says, return to me. That's the word repent. When anytime it says repent, it means come back to me. And so I just want to give you guys a little grace here this morning is sometimes we, do, we get in wrong situations and wrong environments and we know we've done wrong and we know we've screwed up and we know we're missing it. And we go, what do we do? And the Bible says, repent. Well, repent isn't just an acknowledgement of wrong. Repent is a returning, right? Kind of like the prodigal son. He returned. And he not only returned, he said, and he acknowledged his wrong, but, he was but in his returning, in his acknowledgement, everything, his world changed. And so Jesus is saying, come back to me. Why? Because the rule and reign of God is here. So the word basilia means the, the realm in which God has absolute authority. The nature of the gospel is the power and the purpose of the kingdom. This is very important for those of you who study your Bibles and you want proof texts. Or people I get, I, we, we're, we're, we're growing up here a little bit. And so people are like, I want proof text. You want proof text? I'll proof text you out the door. All right. <laughs> you want text? I'll give you text all day long. <laughs> 101 times the, the word gospel is used in the New Testament. 101 times. It is most accompanied by these two words, the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of Christ. And it is also accompanied by the gospel of God. 
So it's the gospel of God and gospel of God and gospel of the kingdom are almost used synonymously. So we have the gospel, which is the generic term. But when, God, when the Bible is being more specific in defining what the gospel actually is, it says the gospel of the kingdom. And it says the gospel of Christ. Those two words right there are very explicit and very explanatory as to what the gospel is. And I love to point this out because I tell people it's not the gospel of salvation. It doesn't say that. I don't, I, in fact, I haven't even found one that says the gospel of salvation. I may be wrong because I haven't thoroughly studied that out. But, it does, but Jesus never referred to it as the gospel of salvation. Now, what does that mean? Is salvation not important? Of course salvation is important. But salvation is one part of a greater whole. You understand that? To become born again is one part of a greater whole. When you become born again, you enter into the dominion and the rule and the reign of God. You enter into the sphere and the atmosphere of all that Christ is. But that isn't the end of it. If salvation was the end of it, why don't we immediately go to be with the Lord? Oh, I'm born again. Whoop, he's gone. You know, we're brought into a kingdom. And it's not just the gospel of salvation. It is the gospel of the rule and the reign of God. And it is the gospel of Christ. And let's be explicit. It doesn't even say the gospel of Jesus. Let's be clear. It says the gospel of the anointing. That's what that word means. You can study it out. You can go up one side, down the other. You can turn left at, at the end of town and study out the word Christ. It means anointed. It means inbreaking of power. The anointing meant power. They anointed kings. Kings carried power. They anointed prophets. Prophets carried power. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the one who brings power. And so we have the gospel of the kingdom and the gospel of power. And then you want to do into the writings of Paul and you want to start talking about gospel of power. And he almost, almost explicitly refers to the gospel as the gospel of power. Almost exclusively when Paul speaks, he speaks of the gospel being of power and not just of word, but in power. And so what we've got to understand, what's the point? We've got to get our theology right. We've got to understand what it is that we're a part of. We've got to understand what it is that Jesus actually came to do. And then we have to understand what is our responsibility in relationship to that. Very, very important. 91 verses in the Bible refer to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. 91 times it's referred to. So it's a pretty dominant topic in the New Testament. You have 101 verses on the gospel, that's a dominant topic. You have 91 verses on the kingdom of heaven itself, that's a dominant topic. And so that means we need to understand what it's actually saying. Okay? So we have to, and in order to understand the gospel of the kingdom, next slide, this is really key. This piece right here, and this is why I'm going to redo it, because it's really key to understanding God. To understand the gospel of the kingdom, we have to understand delegated authority. Let's just say it together. Delegated authority. And this is to understand the sovereignty of God. This is where all teaching and all misunderstandings of God are applied. Most of the misunderstanding about God and most of the misapplication about God's nature is applied to a failure to understand delegated authority. A failure to misapply what God's sovereignty actually means. And so we take things and we think we know what we're talking about, but we don't because we're not lining it up with the scripture. So if we're going to understand God's sovereignty, we have to understand that in his sovereignty, he delegates authority. God being king commits rulership to those who follow him. That's what delegated authority means. Some of you, 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 uh, you work in a workplace and they give you a project. They delegate the authority of that project to you. Do they not? Okay. Police officers, they don't make the law, but they are the delegated authority to enforce the law. Correct? They're not making the law. Who gives them the power? The state delegates the authority to the officer to enforce what the state has said. Delegated authority. Delegated authority is everywhere. We see delegated authority in the Trinity. Son serves the Father. Father gives authority to the Son. The Spirit serves the Father and the Son. And the Spirit is given the highest honor. It's very important. Although all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, are equal, they are all individual, they are all separate, and they are all God, they are one, they are the Hebrew word ehad. Yet they mutually submit to one another and they mutually serve one another in a delegated role of authority. The father willed that man would not be lost. He sent the son. The son serves the father. The son comes into the world, serves the father by becoming like us, dying a brutal death, taking on the pain and the suffering of death and the penalty of sin itself, rising from the dead and ascending back into heaven, sitting down now at the right hand of God in the power of majesty 
And God, Bible says that all authority was given to him. Right? All judgment is now given to the son. Why? The father has delegated the authority now to the son. The Holy Spirit is the delegated representation of the kingdom of heaven in the earth. He comes to serve the father and the son in the world. So the Holy Spirit is sent and he now is the one imparting the power. He now is the one delegating the authority of the kingdom throughout the earth. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit by the Son is being served by the Son and the Father by giving the highest honor. All manner of blasphemy against the Father will be forgiven. All manner of blasphemy against the Son will be forgiven. But to profane the work of the Holy Spirit, that will not be forgiven. And while I like to tell people, what does that mean? It means sometimes things that happen spiritually within the kingdom may not be your thing, but you should be slow to speak against them. Slow to speak against them. Right? If you don't know what you're talking about, put your hand over your mouth. It's better to not speak against the Holy Spirit than to speak against him and be wrong. And so we have to not profane the Holy Spirit. We have to honor the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not to be forgotten. Holy Spirit's not to say, hey, stand over there in the corner until we decide we need you and then we'll summon you. No, the Holy Spirit takes the rightful seat of authority. And he manifests the kingdom presence among the people of God. And he manifests the kingdom presence to the people of God. And he manifests the kingdom presence through the people of God. The Holy Spirit has the highest seat of honor. And when we honor the Spirit, we honor the Son. Because the Son has sent the Spirit. And the Spirit does not testify in his own name. Very important. The Spirit has not come to glorify himself. But Jesus said that. He will not testify of himself. He testifies of me. He takes what is mine and makes it known to you. Angels have delegated authority. So we have to understand delegated authority. This isn't a foreign concept to God. We have archangels. Michael the archangel is a delegated authority, is he not? It means he's over something. We have delegated authorities in the demonic world. Principalities, powers, mights, and dominions. That's delegated authority. Adam was delegated authority. Abraham was delegated authority. The nation of Israel was delegated authority. And the church is delegated authority. And the believer is delegated authority. The purpose of the delegated authority is to express the rule and reign of God in the sphere of delegation. This is important. Where he has given us delegation is the arena in which we operate. Did we understand that? So policemen have jurisdiction. Let's go back to cops because we can all understand that. So, you know, a county cop can't really pull you over on the turnpike. In case you didn't know that. State troopers have the jurisdiction over the turnpike. In case you didn't know that, right? City of Miami cop can't pull you over here in, uh, outside of his jurisdiction. So if you're in Doral, you know, the city of Miami cop may be able to pull you over, but he's got to call a Doral cop to come and enforce it. Or if it's unincorporated Dade County, he's got to call. So the point being is that there's jurisdiction. But within the sphere of the jurisdiction, the officers are obligated and allowed to exercise their authority. So while we have to understand that we are delegated authority, we also have to understand the sphere in which we are delegated. And here's why. Next slide. People translate to God things that are not his responsibility. I want to understand this. As soon as Adam and Eve fell, Adam and Eve fell, not only did they fall, but the whole sphere of their influence fell with them. The world fell with them. Why? Because Adam and Eve, our ancestors, were delegated the responsibility of the kingdom upon the earth. And so when they fell, so did the earth. And what was Adam's immediate response? It's your fault. Adam's immediate response was to transfer the problem back to God. And he said, it's the woman that you gave me that made this happen. In other words, you're responsible for the condition that I find myself. You're responsible for the way the world is. You're responsible for all of the stuff that's happened here. All the bad stuff in the world you're responsible for because you gave me the woman. I have nothing to do with it. We see an absolute re 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 rejection of, of his responsibility. Was it, at, was it God's fault? Wasn't, it wasn't God's failure. It was Adam's failure in his stewardship. And then it was Adam's second failure to acknowledge that he actually had stewardship. And herein we find the church. We find the church failing in our stewardship, Christians. We've, this is how, what we do. This is why we have to understand this because this is how God would have it. And, and, and again, here's the problem. I will say this to you. If you're a Christian, it's not your problem. You know where the problem lies? The problem lies with the teaching. Your job is to follow the teaching. That's your job. The job of the teacher is to teach you the right things. And when the teacher is not teaching you the right things, the problem is not with the people. The problem is with the teacher. 
And so we have failed with teaching to get people to understand what this thing actually looks like. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Most of them personal and prideful. Nonetheless, we create doctrines to justify our unbelief. We create doctrines to justify our fear. We create doctrines to justify our cowardice. It's what we do. We create doctrines to make ourselves more comfortable because we don't like to address the uncomfortable things within the dimensions of God. But we never grow and we never experience him on the greater level. And so the important thing here is, is to understand that we, what Adam did, God gave him authority. Adam failed in his authority and then he failed to acknowledge that he actually had the authority. Well, I didn't have it. That's your problem. That wasn't mine. I didn't have any responsibility there. That's not me. And that's the point. We have sovereignty in our will. Humans have sovereignty in our will. God gives us a free will. We can choose love, choose to love God, serve God, or we can choose to love and serve ourselves. You have a sovereignty of will. God will never overcome your will. He will not. He will seek to influence your will, but he will never overcome your will. You understand that? There's a difference between influencing a will, and over ladies, you should know this if you're married, there's a difference between influencing your husband's will and actually getting him in a full Nelson and making him do it. <laughs> but you try to influence his will, right? That's how God works. He seeks to influence our will, but doesn't overcome our will. And we have some verses here. I'm not going to get too much into these, but basically you can look at them for yourself. How long will you fall between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. What, what, the, what the point of the verses is, is to show the sovereignty of will. Sovereignty of will. Man has a choice in the process. We can choose God or we can reject him. It's not God's fault that people go to hell. So you know. Well, God willed that they go to hell. That's not according to the Bible. God wills that none should perish, but all should come to saving knowledge. According to the Bible, his sovereign will is that people become born again. That is the will of the Lord. So why do we not see the sovereign will of God? Because God has delegated the sovereign, he's delegated that authority to human will, and he's delegated the knowledge of the kingdom to the church. Romans says, how will they know unless they're told? We've been given a ministry, Corinthians says we've given a ministry of reconciliation to minister to people and to draw them unto Christ, all of us. So while it's God's sovereign will that no one perish, it is the delegated responsibility of the church to proclaim the kingdom and to proclaim salvation, and it's the delegated responsibility of the church to go into all the world and to reach out to our friends, family, ones, and loved ones. That's the only way they're gonna get saved. Jesus isn't gonna magically appear in a room one night, although he could, he can do anything he wants, but you're the only Jesus those people may ever encounter. And so while it's God's will to, for them to come to Christ, it is a delegated authority and a delegated responsibility that we have in order to reach them. That's the teaching of the kingdom. That's the teaching of the gospel. The church is given sovereign, sovereign authority and responsibility. We have, a designment, we have a divine assignment of making the kingdom known. The assignment of the church is to make the rule and reign of God known upon the earth. The assignment of the, of the individual Christian, your assignment is to make the rule and reign of God known in the spheres of your life, even over your own heart. And so let me just relieve you a little bit because this, this, this is a real uh, relieving statement. And we can say it together. We said it last week, but it's good to filter us into our hearts. So let's just say it together. Jesus, Jesus. tells us what? but seldom tells us how. You understand that? So don't be freaked out if Jesus is telling you what and you don't know the how. That's how he works. He works like that. He tells you what, but he doesn't tell you how. And how do you, so, so you say, well, how do I figure out what he's, he's told us to do this, so how do we do that? You figure it out by one, through relationship, communing with him, asking for his wisdom. Okay, Lord, you're telling me to do this because that's what he wants. He wants you to relate to him. It's about a relationship and not a religion. And so God wants you to relate to him. You're telling me to reach these people. You're telling me to love my wife. You're telling me to honor my husband. You're telling me to raise these children. I don't have any idea what I'm doing. That's step one. Step two, help me, Lord, to do that. That's, that's, that's how we do it. We relate to it. And then the second part is intentional action and risk. You have to step into what it is he tells you. I know a lot of Christians, they've not only been told what, they understand the what, they've also been told how, but they're too chicken to actually do it. They're too afraid. They live a life in bondage and fear because they're afraid. And they go, well, I just want God to tell me something. What, what has he already told you? 
He's not going to tell you another thing until you do the very thing that he's already told you to do. You have to cross the chicken line and you have to take, it's a culture of risk. And you risk going into it not knowing what you're doing with a safety net of grace under you. So we're walking a tightrope, not knowing what we're doing, but underneath this is grace. So if we fall, boing, woo, that was fun. Let's go try that again. That's the whole point. God does not condemn you for trying. That's again, this is a principle. Peter got out of the boat, right? We could say he tried. Did Jesus condemn him for trying? Not once. He said, why'd you stop having faith? That was awesome, Peter. That was awesome. And my wife likes to say, little faith. Little faith, Peter. Slapped him on the back. That's what you can do with little faith. Imagine what you can do with great faith. Good job, little faith. Little faith moved you out on the water. What will great faith do for you? We have sovereignty. So we have to understand our divine assignment. We have to understand what it is that we're all about and why. And here's a little graphic for you. Okay? And here's the idea. God's sovereignty. So has God delegated all of his sovereignty? Answer, no. This is where the conflict comes in. Because people read the Bible and they can see areas in which God is still sovereign. But then there's areas where he's not sovereign. And so we go into this conflict mode. Well, he's sovereign here and he's not sovereign there. He's sovereign here and he's not sovereign there as if God was schizophrenic. And what we do by nature, because we don't want responsibility, so because that's a human nature is not to accept responsibility. I don't know if you're all human in the room, but that's what we really don't. We really don't want responsibility. And so what we do is we want to cast the responsibility back off on God when that's not entirely the story. So God still holds sovereignty over his holiness. It's important to understand. What is his holiness? It means he alone defines what is right and wrong. No human being has the right to define what is right and wrong. The Lord alone is holy. He defines his holiness. Culture, kingdoms, kings, governments, societies, people, places, things have no right to determine what is right and wrong. The Lord alone is holy. Amen. Yeah, hey, come on. Yeah, one of you. Yes, come on. <laughs> he alone is holy. He not only is holy over what is right and wrong, he alone defines the manner in which he can be approached. That's again, sovereignty over his holiness. You can't approach God any old way. So you know. You approach him through the blood of Jesus. You can't come to him through Krishna and Buddha and Allah and Uncle Bill, Tom Cruise. You can't come to him through those means because he's holy. And you go, well, I think I should be able to come to God through Tom Cruise. You know, you're not going to come to God through Tom Cruise because God defines his holiness. He defines the manner in which he can be approached. And he says, through the blood of Christ, through the sacrifice of Christ alone. And if you've received the sacrifice of Christ alone, you know what he says to you? Come boldly. Don't come into my presence like a chicken. Don't come into my presence like a downcast. Walk right in and talk to me. Come right in and talk to me. That's what he says. Come boldly. Because you've received Jesus. You now have the right to come before me. But apart from Christ, God in his holiness, that's what we see with the ark. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, they touched the ark and they died. What's the point? You don't carelessly carry my presence. You don't carelessly approach me. I am sovereign over my holiness. And he is still sovereign over his holiness. He's sovereign over his word. Jesus said, not one part of this word will be left until it's all fulfilled. No one can change it. No one can alter it. You can wish it away. You can will it away. You can say, I don't believe that. I don't think that. You can say all those things that you want, but the word of God will stand true. The word of God endures forever. My word I hold above my name, he says. God is sovereign over his word. The word of God is in a trajectory of God. It is the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the book will still be here. That's what it says. Somebody says the only thing that will survive a nuclear fallout would be like insects and stuff like that. I'm like, no, the word of God would endure a nuclear fallout because it'll endure forever. Jesus is sovereign over the rising and the falling of nations. What does that mean? While he delegates government, he's sovereign over the influences that the governments can have. If you're aware of that. He's given government to nations. So he's delegated the rule of government over the nations. But what he has not delegated is the sovereignty over the rising and the falling of nations. So he's still sovereign over the influence that the nations have in the world. God determines the level of influence that the nations have. He's sovereign over the end of the age. Jesus said, no one knows the, man, the day or the hour. You can't change it. You can't alter it. You know, that's what I tell people. The end of the age is not in the hands of people. 
The end of the world is in the hands of the Lord. The end of the age as we know it, that's what we would equate as the end of the world. To us, it seems like a disaster, but from heaven's eyes, God sees it as the beginning of the newness of the kingdom. He sees it as pale and genesia, the renewal of all things. We see it as humans and we think it's the end of everything. When in God's eyes, it's the beginning of all things. That time, that season, that place is in the hands of the Lord alone. He doesn't give that away. He owns it, but he does delegate. Where does he delegate? He delegates family. God's not responsible for your marriage, FYI. God's not responsible for the raising of your children, FYI. That doesn't mean God won't be involved. God will not involve in your marriage. He will not involve in your children. He will not involve himself unless you ask him. Because why? You are the delegated authority. You understand that? So you are the one that's given authority in your home. You are the one that's given authority over your children. The Lord will want to get involved, but he will not because he works in line with the authority that he's delegated. We get it? So God will involve himself if you open the door and say, Jesus, come in here and help me solve these problems. He'll come right in and help you. I stand at the door and knock. He'll, Jesus, help me with these children because I don't know what I'm doing. If you ask him, he'll come. Lord, give me the wisdom, the insight, the understanding. He'll give it to you. But he ultimately is not responsible. That's why he says, you teach your children of the Lord. Husbands, you love your wives. Wives, you submit. And here it is. He tells you what, but he doesn't tell you how. He submits, he delegates authority to governments. God is not responsible for the government's actions. He is not responsible for the government actions, nor is he responsible for the government's inaction. God is not responsible for the suppressive and oppressive governments throughout the world. He is not. He has delegated authority unto men in the realm of government. And when the character of the people rises, the government changes. When the character of the people drops, the government becomes more oppressive. Welcome to the United States. Everywhere where the character of the people is high, the government is free. Everywhere where the morality and the character of the people drops, the government becomes oppressive. You can find it throughout the world. And our government, in our country, in our day, in our time, becomes more oppressive and more oppressive because the character and the morality of the people continues to drop. And in proportion to that comes the oppression. That's the point. But God is not responsible to that, for that. He has delegated authority unto people. The problems in Africa will solve when people care about the problems in Africa. Heaven is not moved by human need. And this ticks people off, but it's in the Bible. Jesus has done everything he's going to do through human need, but through the cross. Heaven is moved by faith. Heaven is moved by understanding the dimensions and the purposes of the kingdom and operating into them with faith and risk and endurance. That's how the kingdom is known. So we say, oh God, don't you see? Don't you see? Don't you have compassion? God's not, you, the Lord's like, I've, I have compassion. The question is, do you have compassion? The question is, does it matter to you? Don't you see blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road, Lord? Don't you see him? Look how pitiful he is. Jesus walked right by. Walked right by the woman with the issue of blood, so you know. Wasn't going to heal her either. Wasn't going to heal Jairus' daughter, the, healer, the daughter of the synagogue. Jesus wasn't going to do anything there. Nothing. What shifted? It shifted when Bartimaeus said, have mercy on me. When Bartimaeus, it mattered to Bartimaeus. It mattered when it mattered to the woman with the issue of blood to not care what the crowd thought, to not crowd care what the people saw, when it mattered enough to her and she pressed in to get what she said he could, she could have, then something changed. Jairus' daughter, she would have died had not Jairus pushed his way through the crowd and said, Lord, heal my daughter. Where's the compassion of heaven? He's walking by a blind man. And people go, well, Jesus only healed one person at the pool of Bethesda, Kevin. And I'll say, yes, he did. But what you don't see there is not one other person asking for healing. Not one other person asked for it. And every time it was asked for, it was given. That's the point. He delegates authority. He delegates authority to the church. There's authority structure within the church and there's an authority structure through the church. We have authority, the authority of the believer. We don't just have authority over demonic things. We have authority over the rules and the realms of the earth. And you say, well, why don't we see it? Because we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. The fact that some of you, this is so new to you, is the evidence that we don't know what we're doing. 
And it's not one person knowing what they're doing. It takes a body of people. It takes a community of people. It takes a church of people. It takes multiple churches of people to create that kind of momentum. But it is absolutely possible. But it will not happen until we understand it. It will not happen until we agree with it. It will not happen until we believe it. It will not happen. Well, I don't know about that. Well, good luck. Sail away, sail away. Oh, happy day. He gives authority in the workplace. We have bosses. But here's the big point. I went off down on that a little bit last week. What I want to talk to you about is the kingdom. What is the authority that's given to the church? It's called the kingdom. Say it. I have kingdom authority. Say it like you mean it. I have kingdom authority. I may not understand it. I may not know what I'm doing. But I have kingdom authority. You got the keys to a Ferrari, ladies and gentlemen. Huh? You do. You do. You have that. Doesn't mean you know how to drive it. Doesn't mean you know how to, you don't mean you know anything about it. But Jesus gives you the what, and he doesn't tell you the how. And we understand the how by pressing in. And here's our United States of America problem. Our United States of America problem is we're so locked in the grid of our head. We're so mentally captive. We are prisoners. The Bible would call it intellectual idolatry. We idolize the mind. Because if we can't understand it and we can't define it, then by God, we're not going to believe it. If we can't understand it and we can't define it, then by God, we're not even going to try. Fools we are. I tell that to Christians all the time. I'm saying, so you understand the gospel then, right? It makes perfect sense to you. God became man, lived sinlessly, died on a cross, went into the grave, ascended, and went back up into heaven. And if I believe in that, I'm born again. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. If it was about making sense to you, nobody would be saved. Because the kingdom does not make sense. It is foreign. His ways are not our ways, nor are his thoughts his our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways above our ways. That's the point. We think we're God. Well, I don't understand it. If I don't understand it, then I'm not going to do it. Well, I wouldn't do it like that. So why would God do it like that? Because you're not God. That's why. We've been delegated the sovereignty of the kingdom. And through the kingdom, we influence all other spheres of life. The kingdom dynamic of the church, it is given to influence all spheres of life. God will interact with your family through prayer. God will interact with your family through intention. God will interact with your family when you start doing what he told you to do. Do what he told you to do. Sometimes it's not an issue of prayer. I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed. Well, have you done what he told you to do? I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed. Have you done what he's told you to do? Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? You want the kingdom to be activated? Obedience is principle one. Obedience, I've given the sacrifice of prayer. Obedience is greater than sacrifice, the Bible says. Well, you've given the sacrifice of prayer up one side and down the other, but have you been obedient to the things he's told you to do? Just saying. The gospel of the kingdom. If there's one thing God wants in the final hour, I can assure you he wants his kingdom known. The Bible actually says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the earth and then the end shall come. The gospel of salvation will be proclaimed in, all the, in the end of the earth until the end shall come? No, doesn't say that. The gospel of Jesus will be proclaimed until the ends of the earth and then the end shall come? Doesn't say that either. The gospel of the king's dominion. The rule and the reign of God will be proclaimed through the people of God unto the ends of the age and then the end shall come. When we are demonstrating the rule and the reign of God into our culture, into our society, through, through social means, through spiritual means, and through means of power, all three, and you can't pull one and say this one doesn't apply, they all apply. That's my point. So what about this kingdom? Next slide. Kingdom must be entered. This is what we understand. How do we enter the kingdom? Hum humbly and becoming born again. Those are the two verses. And we also enter, so we enter the kingdom, we become born again through humility, blessed are the poor in spirit, humble in spirit, and, and unless you're born again, giving your life to Christ, you become born again. And then what we do, now we're in the kingdom, but we increase in realms of the kingdom. This is a mystery. We increase in realms of the kingdom through struggle. Everybody say, through struggle, I increase in the realms of the kingdom. Very important. That, not three, two. The kingdom is here. First thing we got to understand is the kingdom has got to be entered. Second thing, the kingdom is right now. And here's again a falsity of the church. It's the sweet by and by. 
Well, what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? It's not the sweet by and by. It's the rotten here and now. That's the point. What does that mean? You have to understand how prophecy is spoken in the scripture. We talked about this in, in uh, Rocket Bible. When there's a prophetic word or a declaration given by God, there's an immediate fulfillment, there's an intermediate fulfillment, and there's an ultimate fulfillment. So when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is here, there was an immediate fulfillment because the kingdom was here, he showed up. There's an intermediate fulfillment, and that is the realm in which we live. And we are in the intermediate realm of the kingdom, making the kingdom known in the intermediate between the immediate and the ultimate. The ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom will come when? Anybody want to help me out with that? When's the ultimate one going to come? When will we see the fullness of the kingdom of God? When Christ returns. Exactly. So you understand what's going on here? We have to understand our theology. So when God speaks of the kingdom, he's saying it's here, it's now, and it will be. We have to get that. So here it is, and I'll, I'll give it to you. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus tells him in Luke 17, go your way. Don't, don't say, look, here it is. Look, it's over there. No, the kingdom is within you. So you become born again. The kingdom is, is come. You receive the kingdom within you. And it's the kingdom within you working out of you. Then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything will be added to you. So we're to seek the kingdom. We're to acknowledge that the kingdom is given to us in our hearts. And then it says we have to understand that it's been given to us. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And we think that that's going to happen when we die. <laughs> that's not true. The kingdom's right now. And we enter it and we develop it and we go into it and we discover it and we become stronger in it through struggles. And where are the struggles? The most powerful struggle is through the mind. That's where the struggle lies. The struggle isn't some external force that's pushing against you. The struggle is the thing that's going on between your ears. And you're struggling to understand and struggling to discern what this means and how you do it and all that other stuff. The renewal of the mind is a huge thing. We quote it, but we don't understand what it means. It means lower your mind. Submit your mind. Take on the mind of Christ. Whole other teaching. <laughs> the kingdom must be understood. Next slide. Kingdom is entered. Kingdom is here. Kingdom must be understood. We have to understand the kingdom. This is how the kingdom is known. Jesus said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. What's that verse tell you? To, give, me, give me two things. Somebody help me out. What are two things that that first part it just told, I just said? There's a mystery to the kingdom. What's the second part? Who gets to know it? Huh? The believer. Exactly. So we have two points here. One, the kingdom can be known only to the believer. And the second thing is, is that there are mysteries. And what does that mean? Not everything is known. We get that? We think, oh, we know it all. Not according to the Bible. You don't have it all zeroed. You don't have this kingdom zeroed. You don't have the realm of the spirit zeroed. I don't care what Dr. So-and-so told you. Dr. Zhivago taught me. I don't care what Dr. Zhivago taught you. This is what the scripture says. There are mysteries. And it goes on. We speak in wisdom to the mature, the wisdom not of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in what? A mystery. Mysterion. God has ordained before the glory which none of the rulers of the age had known. There's a mystery to the kingdom. Let everyone consider us as servants and stewards of what? Mystery. Mystery. We think we got it all figured out. Not according to the Bible. There are mysteries and unknown things to this kingdom that must be pressed into in order to be understood. And that relates to a lot of different things. Your destiny has to be pressed into in order to be understood. The power of the gospel must be pressed into in order to be understood. The manifestation of the spirit must be pressed into in order to be understood. Because there's mysteries. In other words, we don't have a little checklist in a coloring book that we're going by. A little fill in the blank. Some of the things are saying God puts it out there and says you can have it if you want it, but you've got to press into it. The kingdom must be increased. Here's the point. We think when we receive Jesus, we've received everything. We haven't received everything. The kingdom must be increased. Jesus is telling parables or seven parables of the kingdom. So you see in the Bible, he'll say the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Kingdom of heaven is like this. And he goes on and on and on and on. Here's a place. He put a parable and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man sows in his field, which is indeed the least of seeds. But when it is grown, it, 
It is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds can come and rest in it. And then he says another parable just like this. What's the point? The kingdom needs to be increased. Another parable he spoke to them and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman hid in a, in a measures until the meal was leavened, until the meal increased. So what happens is, as we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive the measure of the kingdom within our hearts and it is our responsibility to increase it. We increase it. The kingdom of heaven, when you come born again, you've received the seed of the kingdom. We have to increase it. He says right here, the woman takes the leaven and works it into the dough until the dough increases. So what I'm trying to tell you is, is that the kingdom dynamic can be increased. We increase in the level of the kingdom. This is what the scripture is saying to us. You get a seed, what are you going to do with the seed? You're going to sow it? You're going to water it? You're going to cause it to grow? Or are you just going to kind of throw it out in your backyard and let it be hang out with the weeds? You have leaven. God's telling you to prepare something. What are you going to do? You're going to knead it into the dough until the dough increases. That's what he's trying to show us. Take the kingdom and apply it and let it increase. That's what he's saying. So the kingdom must be understood. The kingdom must be increased. And the kingdom must be demonstrated. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. Okay? We've got to get our theology correct. And we've got to move past elementary things and we've got to understand who he is, why he is, and what he has committed to us and what our responsibility is in what he's committed. And let me just say this. Let's just say it. Hold your hand up high. Come on, hold it up high and say, I have a responsibility to make the kingdom known. And I'm going to give you two verses. Jesus does the parable of the talents, okay? He says, the kingdom of heaven's like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a man going away on a far journey. And get the picture, Jesus is leaving. Kingdom of heaven is like a man going away on a far journey and he entrusts to his people or to his servants talents. So he goes away on a far journey, king comes back. And what does he do when he comes back for the talents? Anybody wanna help me out? What's he do? He calls his servants account for what they have been given. You and I, so you know, you and I have been given resurrection power. According to the book of Romans, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in me. You and I have resurrection power. We've been entrusted with the talent and the power of the kingdom. In Christ, when he comes and we account to him, not for our salvation, but for our service, you will not account for your salvation, Christian, but you will account for your service. And when you account for your service, he's going to ask you, did you steward my resurrection power? Did you do anything? Did you multiply the talents that I gave you? There's another parable in case this one doesn't get hit home. It says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who leased a vineyard out. Get the picture? King gives the stewardship, the delegation. So here we have it. The king who gives away the vineyard is not responsible for to produce the wine. The people who have the vineyard are responsible to produce the wine. And it says the king shows up and says, where's my wine? Do you see the point? Ignorance will not, will not eliminate the issue that we will account for service. I want you to understand that. Well, you can't say, it's like the guy who buried the talent. Well, I didn't know. I just didn't know. Ignorance, he's still going to hold you accountable. Ignorance will not excuse you, nor will fear excuse you. Well, I was afraid and I buried it. That didn't excuse him either. It didn't excuse him. They were committed something, they were committed a what, and it was up to them to determine the how. But they were still responsible to produce something. So what I'm trying to get you to understand is delegated authority and what we are responsible for and what God is responsible for. As you go, preach the kingdom. What is he telling us to do? Proclaim the kingdom and do what? Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, why? Freely you've received, freely you give. There's a what. Anybody want to tell me how? Anybody? Anybody want to tell me how we do that? Uh, no one can. But it, next slide. Last slide. What's the, he's telling us a what? He's telling us to proclaim the dominion of God, and he's telling us in doing so, do these things. And you say, well, that's only for the apostles. You can't say that. You cannot say that. If you want to say that, you may as well eliminate the entire book of Matthew. You cannot theologically say that. That is a false teaching in line with how scripture is understood. So we, if we accept the book of Matthew, we have to accept the teaching. And so that's what it says. Here's a what, and what do we do? How do we do it? We don't know what we're doing. Just like you don't know what you're doing, but you step into those realms and you try your best to make it happen. Why? Because it makes people feel good? No, because it's what Jesus wants. 
We do it not because people like it. We do it because the Lord has commanded it. If you read that and you want to Bible study that out, that is called an emphatic imperative. And you know what an emphatic imperative is? It's a command. It's not a suggestion. He doesn't say, if you feel like it, do it. If you think about it, do it. He says, do it. And you say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Well, neither do I. There's an emphatic imperative that tells me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That's a command. He doesn't say, Kevin, if you feel like it, love her like I love the church. He says, do it. And so what do I do in doing it? I don't know what I'm doing, but I have to step into it. And I go, is it like this? Nope. Well, it's not like that. Is it like this? Well, no, it's not like that. That's the same principle that we apply to the kingdom. It's the same principle that we apply to social issues when we're trying to solve the problem and bringing the kingdom to the world on a social level. It's the same pro problem that we solve in trying to bring the kingdom to the world in a spiritual level. We don't know what we're doing. We got people here who work for Touching Miami with Love. They work with Inner City. I just asked Gavin last week. I go, do you guys know what you're doing? He said, we have no clue. We have no clue. We're in Inner City. We're in Inner City, Liberty City, trying to serve the poor in Inner City, Liberty City, and we don't know what we're doing. So because you don't know what you're doing, does that mean you don't do anything? Of course not. Of course not. We have to take these things and understand it. The kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Who are we? We are a revival culture and we are a kingdom culture. We are called to bring the awakening of God to the world in every form. And we are called to bring the dominion and the rule and the reign of God to the world in every form. It's who we are. It's who we are. It's who we are. This is when Jesus relates to you and he sees you and you stand before him, he's not going to pat your hand and go, boy, you are a really good church attender. He'll commend you for attending church, but he's going to say, did you do anything with what you were taught? Did you do anything? Wow, you really worshiped, and I saw you many times get the warm fuzzies when the Holy Spirit came on you. Did you do anything else with the Holy Spirit besides get the warm fuzzies? Did you do anything else besides have a personal, intimate Bible study with the Lord yourself? That's what he's going to ask us, because it's who we are. And so the idea here is that we have to understand who we are. We have to understand who he is and what he has given to us. And we have to acknowledge our responsibility in doing so. We can't be like Adam and say, oh, it's not my fault. It wasn't, wasn't committed to me. We can't say that. And so the point is we have to understand these things. And this is what it looks like. And I am way over because we have to do communion. So here's what I'm going to say. We have communion today. And what is communion? Communion is a model of the kingdom. We serve a king. The king came down, laid down his life for us, shed his blood so that he could be in us and we could be in him. Broke his body so that he could be in us and we could be in him. This is the purpose of communion. Communion is a demonstration of a reality, a spiritual reality. And so we participate in something physically that relates to something spiritually. And so what we're gonna do, if, if uh, we're gonna get music, are we gonna, how are we gonna do this? I don't know who's in what. So what we're going to do just to close out the service here this morning. I was not intending on being this, uh, shall we say, intense. <laughs> it just flowed. So if you would, as Mauricio plays, if you would just kind of rise up and go around the outside and grab the communion element, grab the juice and grab the cracker. And just there'll be someone there to attend to you. It's just you can just do it right now and, I'll, and take it back to your seat. And I'll bless the elements and we'll take it together. If you would do that, please.
Do you know that he loves you so much that he refuses to leave you the same? Do you know that you were created on purpose with a purpose and the Lord will not allow you to undervalue yourself in your purpose? Did you know that? Everywhere in scripture where God had some issue with his people, it was because they were lowering themselves beneath what it was he had created them to be. It wasn't the issue, the idolatry was never the issue with, the, with, with God and his people. It was the fact that they had lowered themselves from the standard that he had called them to. And they had taken on a lesser role and a lesser life from what it was he had purposed them to do. And so what I want you to know is that Jesus loves you. And he loves you so much that he refuses to leave you the same. He refuses to leave you locked in the traditions. He refuses you to leave you locked in the beliefs that you hold. He refuses to do so. Where there is no challenge, there is no change, someone told me a long time ago. And if you are not challenged, then you will never change. If you do not struggle against the challenge with which you are presented, you will never change. It's part of the journey and it's part of the process. Jesus struggled on the cross in order to bring change. Jesus struggled in the garden in order to bring change. Jesus struggled while whips were being placed upon his back in order to bring change. Without the struggle, there could have never been change. Without the endurance of the struggle, there could have never been change. Jesus, with his disciples, he said, as often as you do this, he broke bread. They brought it out, the Afi Coleman. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Every time you do this, I want you to remember me. So this is about remembrance. So let's just hold it up. Say, this is the body of Jesus. It was broken for me. And I receive it. Let's take it together. He held up a cup. And the cup had a name. And the name of the cup was redemption. You can believe it. And he said, this is my blood. It is the blood of the new covenant. Better promises, better beginnings, better hopes, better days. I shed my blood for you. Every time you do this, remember me. Remember that what I did was no small thing. Remember that what I did was not common. And let's just say this is the blood of Jesus. And it was poured out for me. And I receive it. Let's take it together.